ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on Three, two, Check ignition one. and may God's love be with you Thank you. 
Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Rory and Dara's Research and Development. Uh, this week we have two very interesting topics that we have researched and that we'll be developing on the show today. And my topic, which you'll be hearing in the second half of the show, is all about board games and their kind of first editions and how they were created. But today, in the first half of the show, you're going to be listening to the one and only Dara Kelly talking to you about Apollo 13. And Dara, I'd like you to introduce yourself first and then introduce the topic. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> off. Well, I'm Mr. Kelly, Dara Kelly, and... The song you were just listening to was Space Oddity by David Bowie, which ties in very nicely with my topic for this week, which is Apollo 13. It's very famous. Um, it was NASA's third moon landing mission, but the astronauts actually never made it to the lunar surface because they encountered several problems along the way. So let's get into this. So it was their third moon landing mission as I said and several problems happened along the way and one of them was or the first one was an oxygen tank explosion almost 56 hours into the flight that forced the crew to abandon all thoughts of reaching the moon so the spacecraft was damaged but the crew were able to seek cramped shelter in the lunar module for the trip back to earth before returning to the command module for an uncomfortable splashdown so the oh mission gosh. yeah it, it's crazy really they had um you know the the odds of survival were really against them really really against them and they were lucky to have gotten out of this really tricky situation alive you know it it, it does sound miraculous what they're about to pull off but uh, i'm really interested there you you've, you've caught me like a fish on a hook <laughs> oh brilliant brilliant but um the mission stands today in history as an example of sort of the dangers of space travel and sort of the unglamorous side of it you know because people think especially we're in an age of space tourism or we're coming to that stage in the near future where space is almost like a an unexplored realm for you know someone like us who isn't an astronaut or military personnel so there's sort of a yes. a glamorous sort of mythical feeling around space but this kind of to excuse the pun brings it right down back to earth if you get me <laughs> <laughs> oh yes i like it i like it <laughs> oh, so really the unsung hero in this mission were really the innovative minds that worked together to save the lives on the flight Okay. Um, mm. The NASA engineers and ground control in Houston worked tirelessly to prevent ah. a loss of life occurring, and it was under their recommendations to, you know, move into the lunar cap, you know, capsule, because normally this is um, yes. sort of they they go into there after they've been at the moon if you get me it's not the main place it's not meant to be uh, you're not meant to be there for a long time you know you're only meant to be there on your return journey home so it's not properly equipped but they had no other choice because the oxygen tanks exploded the beggars can't be choosers in this situation exactly, they had to exactly. go anywhere they were safe <laughs> that's it 
But a little backstory about the, you know the astronauts involved. Um, the Apollo 13 astronauts were Commander James Lovell, Lunar Module Pilot Fred Hayes, and Command Module Pilot John Swigert. And at age 42, Lovell was the world's most travelled astronaut when he joined the Apollo 13 mission. And he had three missions and over 572 spaceflight hours under his belt. Gee whiz, so he's very experienced, you know? He had he a cool is, head on his shoulders. You know, in a way they are blessed to have had such a man with experience and a vast amount of experience on that mission. Because if you think about it, you know, if you are in a peculiar situation or a really tricky situation like that, where your life hangs, you know, by the balance of it, or even by a thread, um, you want someone with the most amount of experience possible to be on that mission. And fortunately, exactly. Lovell was there. Hmm. You want you want someone who, who who's so experienced that some of the procedures are almost like second nature to them, so they don't have to think; they just do. And those valuable seconds where you don't have to think, you just act, are probably some of the reasons that they got saved. For sure, for sure, exactly. And I suppose he had so much experience under his belt, even with prior Apollo missions. So he participated in, for instance, Apollo Eight which was the first mission to circle the moon. And he also flew two Gemini missions, including a 14-day endurance run. Oh. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, you know, he's a hardcore astronaut. He knows what he's doing. And this was kind of his reward in a way, you know, being touching down on the moon was probably the pinnacle of his career. Exactly. But sadly, his dreams got dashed. <laughs> Exactly, they did get dashed, but in a way he'll forever go down in history as a hero, really. Along with all everyone who participated in that mission because of what went wrong. Yes, but, um, absolutely. A little more background about maybe Commander Hayes. Um, so prior to the Apollo 13 mission, uh, 36-year-old Hayes served as a backup lunar module pilot for the Apollo 8 and Apollo 11 missions. So he was on Apollo 8 with Lovell as a backup lunar module pilot, okay? So he's on that mission. Okay. Yes. And Hayes was a fighter pilot in the US Marine Corps before joining NASA as a test pilot. So if you think about it down in history, many of the US Army's best um, pilots in the Army went into spaceflight just because of their vast experience and their, you know, sublime technical abilities as pilots. And just not only that, but their ability to stay calm under pressure yes absolutely and, and would you also say that their ability to kind of still function under such immense g-force especially like when they're breaking through the atmosphere do you think that was also a, exactly. a reason that they would be picked exactly well if you think about it space flight and ultras are supersonic um flight on earth they're both very similar because you're enduring similar conditions on your way um, in a spacecraft, basically, when you're leaving Earth's orbit, you're being, you know, uh, true crazy G-forces, you know, crazy G-forces, much like um, fighter pilots who might go six, seven Gs, you know what I mean? It, it's crazy. So Gosh, yes. that experience and that ability to 
fly a spacecraft under those conditions um, is brilliant to have for spaceflight. Indeed, and actually what's really strange is that recently on, on uh, some of the social media platforms that I'm on, I've, I've been suggested, uh, videos keep being suggested of pilots during their G-Force training. Yes. And just, oh my goodness, the amount, the amount of pressure, like just the, the, the just absolute agony that they, they, they feel during these G-Force training sessions is just like immense. I, I can't believe that you then willingly choose to basically put yourself through that again during maybe during like a firefight or in this instance breaking through the atmosphere of Earth. Like it is mental what they go through. Exactly. Um, and even if you look at their faces, it's really funny because <laughs> they, they're distorted like, when they're on, when they're going through the training. Yeah, not not just in everyday no, life, no, they're no, just no. contorting their faces. <laughs> but, um, oh, sure. Apollo 13 was Swigert's first trip to space, so he's very much a novice. And he was 38 years old. And he had been part of the support crew for Apollo 7 and was initially going to be Apollo 13's backup command module pilot. But he was asked to join the crew 48 hours before launch time after the original command module pilot, Ken and Mattingly, was exposed to German measles. Oh my goodness, so he wasn't even supposed to be on the flight. Oh gee whiz. Not at all, not at all. So, um, <laughs> oh gosh. You know, but then it begs the question, you know, if they had a different crew, would the outcome have been the same? Very true. That is a great point to, to make, Derek, because maybe it was fate that the, the original uh, pilot uh, was came down with the measles, the German measles. Maybe it was fate that he was going to be on that flight and basically help save the lives of the other two crew members. Exactly, exactly. But um, I suppose the next thing I'd like to draw your attention to is, you know, that famous saying, Houston, we have a, we've had a problem. You know, Houston, we've had a problem. Yes. You know, Houston, we've had a problem. You know, that kind of job. Oh, yes, Dara. <laughs> you that's, gave it uh, gusto. I loved it. <laughs> that, that's from Apollo 13, really. Um, and goes, is really at the heart of this story. So, Apollo 13 was launched on April 11th, 1970. And the Apollo aircraft, or spacecraft, sorry, was made up of two independent spacecraft joined by a tunnel. So, there was an orbiter called the Odyssey and lander called the Aquarius. The crew lived in Odyssey on the journey to the moon. And then on the evening of April 13th, when the crew was 200,000 miles from Earth and closing in on the moon, mission controller C. Liebergott saw a low pressure warning signal on a hydrogen tank in Odyssey. So there were two sort of possibilities that arose from this signal so it either could have been that the hydrogen just needed to be resettled by heating and fanning the gas inside the tank which was um, a common procedure you know it's called a cryo stir and that's supposed oh. to stop the super cold gas from settling into layers so it, okay. it, it's a common procedure or it could have been a serious problem okay yes so Swigert, or Commander Swigert, flipped the switch for the routine procedure, and a moment later, 
the entire spacecraft shook. Alarms lit up in Odyssey and in Mission Control as oxygen fell and power disappeared. The crew notified oh, Mission Control with Swigert famously saying, Houston, we've had a problem. Okay. Oh my gosh, your heart, your everything just must sink. Like if anything goes wrong in space, you're doomed. Like, oh, the feeling of utter dread that these astronauts would have felt. Oh, Dara, I can't even imagine it. It's just too scary to even contemplate. Oh my God. I know it, it is crazy, but the actual fault that um, NASA engineers discovered after was due to improper wiring next to the oxygen, oxygen tank. Um, that was due to several test flights and tests being done and that the wires had become loose and therefore when the switch was flipped a spark arose and that sparked the oxygen so that's what happened okay so a spark from an exposed wire in the oxygen tank caused a fire ripping apart one oxygen tank and damaging another inside the spacecraft but then so they, they must have been low yeah, on oxygen then exactly but that's not all see oxygen fed the odyssey's fuel cells and therefore power was reduced as well okay so the attitude control thrusters and the venting oxygen um, monitors and stuff were completely knocked off the grid oh my gosh such a dire situation exactly oh my goodness but fortunately enough, the damaged Odyssey had a healthy backup in the Aquarius, which wasn't supposed to be turned on until the crew was close to landing on the moon. So Hayes and Lovell frantically worked to boot Aquarius up in less time than designed. Aquarius didn't have a heat shield to survive the drop back to Earth, so as Lovell and Hayes got the lunar module up and running, Swigert remained in Odyssey to shut down its systems to conserve power for splashdown. So it could only get them so far. It wasn't designed to essentially bring them home. Yes, yes. So it, it was basically, it was a, a short-term solution for a long-term problem because when they reached Earth, it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be there for them. It, they'd have to basically abandon that ship. Exactly. That is exactly it. Couldn't have put it better. Like it's Gosh. only a temporary solution for them or a temporary stay exactly exactly but at that stage they probably just needed to give themselves some safety net so they could you know take a moment and just reevaluate the situation get get down to the nitty-gritty and come up with how they're going to re-enter the earth exactly exactly um but they managed to do it that's what i'd like to say you know when you hear about a story like this you think it's going to end the bad way or the wrong way but they actually managed to do it and return home safely but i'll just go in depth of you know what they actually did to return oh, yes. safely home so obviously they had a lot of challenges to overcome okay so they had to challenge you know how would they get home with sufficient thrust but then leave enough in the um odyssey so that they'd be able to return home if you get me so after yes. they performed a crucial burn to point the spacecraft back towards Earth, the crew powered down every non-essential system in the spacecraft. Okay? Oh, gosh. And then 
Without a source of heat, cabin temperatures quickly dropped down close to freezing and some food became inedible. The crew also rationed water to make sure Aquarius would have enough liquid to cool its hardware down. And Aquarius was pretty cramped as it was designed to hold two people and not three. And then, Gosh, this and were they is, yeah. in their spacesuits at this stage? There, would they have been like, would they have had their helmets and, and, and spacesuits on, or would this all be without like helmets and just basically the overall kind of things that the astronauts wear? I think they would have had to put on helmets when they were going from Odyssey to Aquarius. Okay. And probably okay, they kept their spacesuits on, as far as I know, because the temperatures were really cold. Oh, all right, all right. So that would have, make sense, you know. You know, um, so they'd have some sort of protection. So, on Earth, a bit of story about Earth, you know, flight director Gene Kranz pulled a shift of controllers off regular rotation to focus on man managing consumables like water and power. Other mission control teams helped the crew with its daily activities and the spacecraft managers worked around the clock to support NASA and the crew. But it was a really rough journey home and I want to stress that, you know, the entire spacecraft crew lost weight. Hayes developed a kidney infection, but in fairness, the small vessel protected and carried the crew long enough to reach Earth. Yes. And in the hours before splashdown, the exhausted crew scrambled back over to the Odyssey and powered it up. The craft had essentially been in a cold water soak for days, could have shouted out, but thanks to safeguards put in place after the Apollo 1 disaster, there were no issues. Oh, and thank Lovell, goodness, thank goodness. Hayes and Swigert splashed down safely in the Pacific Ocean near Samoa on the 17th of April. So it's an amazing story, but I think one must not just focus on the story, one must also focus on its legacy. Absolutely. What they, they achieved is absolutely heroic. It's mental, like, to even fathom the amount of stress they would have been under to, you know, clear heads to prevail in this kind of strenuous situation is just absolutely mind-boggling and incredible. And it's such an admirable thing that they achieved. I know their lives are at risk, but realistically, Dara, would you say that maybe the Apollo program would have been put back years if they perished in, in the flight? Oh yes, but what would you think? it would have been very hard even to justify spending taxpayers' money on spaceflight. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking as well. Once you start losing people on projects like this, you know, the public's perception will start to change. People would start saying maybe it's too dangerous, you know, to continue with the Apollo missions. I, I agree with you completely. Exactly. There. Exactly. That's exactly it. But some, or actually many, design changes were made to the Apollo service module and command module due to Apollo 13. So these are some of the things and changes that were made. Starting off with the change in the cryo oxygen tank design. So what they did was they added another one that could be isolated to only supply the crew so that they weren't dependent on only the few that provided oxygen 
for the whole spacecraft. Ah, that's clever. That's exactly. clever. I like that a lot. Also, the backup. Exactly. So they also removed all cryo tank fans and wiring. They removed the thermostats and cryo tanks and changed the type of heater tube. They also added a 400 amp hour lunar module descent stage battery and they added water storage bags to the command module. Okay. So a lot of changes, that, a lot of smart good. changes and basically you can see a lot of it is either the electrics or the oxygen tanks and both of those caused the spark. The spark. Imagine being the engineer as well. The poor bloke comes in, he's like, I just gotta do some wiring. Starts doing the wiring, you know, leaves at half five, thinking he's, you know, put in half an hour extra on his shift, really pleased with himself. And he's listening in and he's like, oh my God, I, I've, I've right done messed up here. I, I've, me <laughs> I've messed up badly, I've messed up badly. <laughs> Oh gosh, uh, yeah. I love how he's not American at all no, as well, no, like no. for NASA. <laughs> but um, as for the astronauts, so Hayes was assigned to command the Apollo 19 moon mission, but it was cut along with two other missions um, after NASA's budget was cut. But he later yes. piloted the space shuttle Enterprise during its test flights. And ah, so for Starfleet, yeah? yeah exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In 1982, Swigert was elected to Congress in his home state of Colorado. However, during the campaign, he was diagnosed with bone cancer and sadly he died before he oh. could be sworn in. Oh, poor so, guy. Very sad. He's been through so much. He'll always go down in history as, you know, such a, a great, brave man. Do you know what I mean? Like a, he has a great a true legacy American hero. Him, a great legacy. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm more than sure that they definitely were awarded, you know, some sort of formal recognition from the American government because, you know, what they achieved is... Oh, yes. Oh, they, it's they, unprecedented. They were, but not only that, they got national recognition. For example, in 1994, Lovell and journalist Jeffrey Kluger co-wrote a book spoke, uh, focusing on Lovell's spacecraft spaceflight career but are primarily focused on the events of Apollo 13 and the book uh, Lost yes. Moon spurred the 1995 movie Apollo 13 starring Tom Hanks and that movie won yes. two Academy Awards and was filmed in cooperation with NASA Ah, I like to think NASA are like, we can double our budget with the box office revenue from this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get plenty more trips to the moon if we just win these Academy Awards, you know. <laughs> Keep sending up probes and everything like that. So Dara, I'll, I'll just ask you this question because you mentioned that, you know, Apollo 19, uh, it was cancelled because NASA funding was cut. And that's obviously because this kind of infatuation with space travel that not only the American populace had, but basically the world had watching Russia and America compete for space travel for such a long time, but it's kind of fizzled out. Why do you think humanity as a whole has kind of stopped believing and reaching for the stars and kind of we've just become content with doing our own bits on Earth. Do you think we'll ever rekindle that flame inside humanity and try and stretch for the stars like Elon Musk is trying to, great, uh, to do? Great question. I think there's many reasons for, you know, the disillusionment. I don't even know if that's a word, but you know, people becoming disillusioned with space travel in the first place. 
probably down to, if you look at NASA, a lot of the reasons why people weren't happy funding NASA or funding spaceflight was that they felt that their money could be put to use solving issues in their homeland instead of just okay. spending it on spaceflight, which is kind of worthless to someone like us if we're not in space. I know it's great for research purposes, but if you think back then, they were just really discovering, you know, different craters on the moon and Mars, stuff like that. It wasn't really making a direct impact on someone's life. Whereas down the line, it will, because as technology gets better and evolves faster and faster, the moon, even Mars, are looking like viable, habitable places you know, that would have been inhospitable. Yes. But I think people like Elon Musk, even Jeff Bezos with his, I think it's, um, he's a spacecraft company, is it called Blue? Or well, what is the name? Um, he's gone into space flight anyway. Blue, I, I, that, that does ring a bell. You know, and you see all these people with money, they're investing in space. Um, it's yes. called Blue Origin, actually. Blue Origin, yeah. There you but, um, go. There you, you go. see all these people like SpaceX, Blue Origin, you know, these companies getting into space travel, but they're trying to commercialize it. So mm. there's huge money in resource or resource mining. So think about mining asteroids for gold, platinum, everything. They're just made out of platinum, diamonds, crazy materials, even nickel. So I think... The allure, the allure of space. Nick. I know I've, I probably would put that round the wrong way around. Like, but, uh, I love that. I love that. If, if, you, if you think the about the most valuable resource, nickel. <laughs> but if you think about it, sorry, sorry. If you think about it, like it's more the allure of money that'll drive technology and advancements. I think for space life, rather than exploration because i think our society is being driven more and more by money and finances rather than the need to explore i'd agree with you entirely dara and i think as as you were saying there society has kind of moved away from these ideological battles you know because it was communist russia versus the capitalist america and it was basically which kind of idea which which you know ideology ideology would win the race to the moon you know and basically conquer space and and we've kind of moved away from these ideological clashes and we've moved more towards well we, we basically agreed that probably capitalism is, is the way to go so far as we haven't found a a better kind of you know societal structure other than capitalism so far that has succeeded if you if you understand what i'm saying and I think we're moving now more towards these kind of commercial juggernauts that are going to be propelling scientific discoveries and everything like that into the future. So I think, as you were saying, the only way we're going to further space travel and space exploration is if we find a way to monetize it and basically make it a commercial, uh, you know, uh, uh, commercialize space travel and, and make it viable uh, to make profit and everything like that and it's a sad truth because if i'm completely honest i would love if if just out of the goodness of, of out of the goodness of people's hearts and the the strive to better humanity people decided that we you know uh, invest in space travel and space exploration 
you know I think that would that, that I'd love that but you know I'm, I'm being very idealistic there I don't think that's going to be true but I, I would agree exactly with what you were saying there that we've kind of moved more towards this money kind of orientated society and commercial success has to be a, 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 an important part in anything being uh, researched nowadays exactly exactly that's a hundred percent and it's a lovely way to wrap up this segment it, it is it's a <laughs> tie a little bow on it <laughs> i thoroughly enjoyed that darren that that was amazing it's such an amazing story and it was told in such an amazing manner if i do say so oh thank you very much rory thank you you're too kind <laughs> not at all not at all you're great there but now ladies and gentlemen you're going to hear from our friends uh, john and felix and they're uh, they're starting their own little podcast and they asked us uh, if we'd Put a little uh, message out there for them to kind of gather a bit of support for them and they're absolutely lovely guys and they're thoroughly entertaining having listened to the podcast they're absolutely great uh, their podcast name is the 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 podcast so for these for those however you want to say it and then the word podcast and they they interview very interesting guests and um, uh, uh, people who are very passionate about certain aspects uh, of themselves and let's say sport and everything Dara you know Dara myself and yourself we're very uh, you know in- enthused by uh, researching and developing stuff exactly. would you say <laughs> we are the founders of research and development really experts on it <laughs> Yes, exactly. NASA built themselves, you know, their research department off of ourselves. On our many books, <laughs> many books. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, John and Felix, the the the, the podcast, uh, the 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 podcast, and um, I'll be playing a little uh, snippet for you uh, now from their show, uh, a little promo, if you will. Additionally, long-time listeners of the show may have noticed that the intro and soon-to-be outro music of today's episode is slightly different. That's because a friend of mine who wished to remain anonymous, who I'll mention more at the end of the show, uh, very kindly um, played some music, recorded some music for us uh, to use at the beginning and the end and the middle of our show. And you're going to hear it three times throughout the show. And I must say, on behalf of Darren and I, we are very grateful for that. Uh, And you'll also be listening to the song, I Hate You, I Love You by Olivia O'Brien. Uh, O'Brien, uh, sorry, uh, and I'll 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 tie that in to the second half of the show. Uh, once we come back after the break, Dara, I think I'll leave the listeners in suspense for now. Exactly. So you'll be listening to "I Hate You, I Love You" by Olivia O'Brien, and we'll be back with you uh, after the break. I'm John. And I'm Felix. We are the hosts of A Fresh Podcast, where every episode we talk to interesting, exciting, and wonderful people about their passions and interests. So join us on The The The, the podcast, podcast to explore the ordinary and discover the extraordinary one conversation at a time. You can find us on all major streaming sites. Thanks very much for listening. And thank you very much, Darren Rory. But I'm still missing you and I can't 
with my lips and now all this time is passing by but i still can't seem to tell you why it hurts me every time i see you Hi, I'm John. And I'm Felix. We are the hosts of A First Podcast, where every episode we talk to interesting, exciting, and wonderful people about their passions and interests. So join us on The The The, the podcast, podcast to explore the ordinary and discover the extraordinary one conversation at a time. You can find us on all major streaming sites. Thanks very much for listening. And thank you very much, Dara and Rory. Hello, welcome back to Rory and Dara's research and development on Flirt FM 101.3. For the past 30 minutes, you've been listening to me harp on about Apollo 13. And we're going to talk about a very similar topic, which ties in beautifully with Apollo 13, which is board games. So, uh, <laughs> Rory O'Gorman, take it away. Equally as stressful as the situations that the the astronauts are put in during the Apollo 13 mission. Uh, you know, when you're playing board games, the same amount of stress is involved. <laughs> oh, exactly. That that's it for sure. That's it for sure. And along those lines, uh, the, the the folks we're listening to, uh, I, I hate you, I love you by Olivia O'Brien because you know when you're playing a board game with your family Dara you love your family but whilst you're playing you absolutely despise them because you just gotta win <laughs> oh that's it you just gotta win you have to win and uh, one of the reasons I decided on the origins of board games uh, primarily I'll be talking about uh, the origins of Monopoly the origins of chess which I think is the best board game ever and the origins of Risk, which I think is the second best board game ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I decided upon this subject because on, uh, on February 6th, 1935, uh, Monopoly uh, went on sale for the first time. You know, commercially went on sale, which I think is very interesting. So the day this, uh, this airs for the first time will be the, the first day uh, Monopoly went on sale in 1935. <laughs> Oh wow, that is crazy. Yeah, no, it's great, it's great. But yeah, I think I'm gonna get straight into it, Dara, and I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Monopoly. Uh, just in case anyone is unfamiliar with the, the kind of nitty gritty of Monopoly or how you play, sorry. Uh, it's basically, uh, players roll two six-sided dice um, and they move around the game board. Uh, they buy and they, they trade properties that are on the game board. Um, and they then can, if they land back on them, or you know, there's a bunch of different kind of t uh, spaces on the board that give players different kind of cash incentives or different trades, etc. They develop houses and hotels, which eventually other players will land on and have to pay rent to the opposing player. Do you think I described that relatively well there? You described it perfectly. Perfectly. <laughs> I love Monopoly. It's great. It is great now, Dara. <laughs> I hope you have some stories to tell us about board games at the end of this segment, because I think they're going to oh, be... <laughs> oh. get, get the thinking cap on now. But what's quite funny about Monopoly is the, the, the goal is to drive your opponents into bankruptcy and have a Monopoly, uh, which is quite an interesting concept, because in society today, you know, Monopolies are kind of frowned upon. Would you say that, Dara? They are, you know, people are more about the consumer being able to set prices rather than 
the industry. Ah, uh -huh, exactly. I'd agree with that. Every, everyone likes to feel like they're in control a little bit and consumers en masse setting prices for sure. normally benefits pe more people than, you know, if, you know, companies uh, set those same prices. Um, and, you know, someone who uh, believed in that, Dara, uh, was uh, a woman called Lizzie Maggie. Oh, Lizzie Maggie. Lizzie Maggie. Tell us, tell us about <laughs> Lizzie Maggie. It's quite a nice name to say, actually, Lizzie Maggie. It's satisfying. It is. It is very satisfying. Lizzie Maggie, you have a very satisfying name, even though I suspect that you are dead. Because she had, came up with the concept of Monopoly all the way back in 1903. Um, and hmm. she... Yeah, interesting indeed. And she was a she was a an anti-monopolist uh, from America, and uh, she she kind of created the the, the first kind of iteration of Monopoly, uh, in the hope that it would help her explain the single tax theory of Henry George. So this this economist called Henry George put forward a theory, and basically this theory was that the American government should cancel all tex Texas. <laughs> Texas? We're going to cancel Texas. Uh, no. uh, we're getting rid of it. We're, getting, we're chopping it off. Uh, we're giving it back to Mexico. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, he, he didn't. He didn't. He, he loved Texas, as, as we all do on Rory and Dara's research and development. Uh, instead, he uh, decided that the government should cut all taxes um, and only tax the public using one tax, a single tax. And that would be based on land values uh, and basically would be the sole source of government revenue. Um, which is quite an interesting theory, but very flawed if you think about it. Very flawed, very flawed. Because you'd have some members of society that wouldn't own any land and would therefore pay no tax. And I'd say that, you know, landowners uh, I don't know. You, you might run into a situation where landowners would be more uh, would be better off uh, just selling their land and not uh, not paying tax. Um, so yeah, that was basically Henry George's um, theory, and Lizzie Maggie was completely against this. Um, so she she invented the first iteration of Monopoly as an educational tool to illustrate the negative aspects of concentrating land into private monopolies, right? Basically negating what Henry George was saying, saying that he was wrong. Um, and, and the first kind of step towards making Monopoly a kind of, you know, cement it as a proper board game, give it some real oomph and get it out there into the public eye. Uh, Lizzie Maggie took out a patent in 1904 uh, and the, she called it the landlord's game. Um, and she became, began self-publishing it uh, in 1906, right? Uh, yes. Which is quite interesting, which is, which is good. And in this time, uh, it, 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 she slowly wrote down the rules and kind of developed it slowly. Um, but there were two sets of rules there, uh, which is very interesting. And it basically, it was the two ideolo ideologies and going back to that tricky word that I have <laughs> trouble saying. <laughs> but um, she, she had two sets of rules. One was an anti-monopolist set, which basically uh, pushed her agenda um, and is the real reason why she created the game. Um, and it rewarded the player when wealth was created. 
Um, and then she also created a monopolist set, which uh, the goal was to create monopolies and crush their opponents. So you, you're starting to see the very early stages of Monopoly here. <laughs> it's very interesting. Very it is. interesting. And it's weird it's because cool. it's... It is. It is very cool, but it completely... It's, it, it sent out the exact ro opposite of the message that Maggie Lizzie was trying to get across. Because yes. the Monopoly version of her game went on to be more popular, which is... Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> grit, yeah, it's grit funny, your teeth isn't moment. It? It is, it is, it is, it is. It's uncomfortable. Exactly. And would do you think you would have enjoyed, I, I don't know if you can still access the rules, I, I must be honest, I haven't looked for them, uh, but do you think you would have enjoyed the anti-monopolist version of the game, Darren? I think, I think it would be kind of fun, because you're thinking the other way, really. Exactly, exactly. Benefit all the players at once. But I wonder how it would end. I guess there's no real end, unless you said a... Set a kind of goal, a goal to raise, let's say, one million Monopoly points for all the players to be shared equally amongst each other. So there you go. Yeah, 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 I get you. <laughs> so, from the 1906 initial concept, right, and release of the Landlord's game, there were several variant board games that, that branched off from this, uh, this kind of idea. Um, and they all involved the process of buying land uh, for its development and the sale of any undeveloped property. Uh, that was the main basis around the thing, uh, these games. And uh, cardboard houses were then added and, and rents increased um, as they were added to, to, to a property. So basically, the beginnings of buying a hotel um, were, were added to Maggie's initial concept um, in the 1920s. Uh, and when she added these aspects of the game in, uh, she decided to patent the game once again in 1923, which is very interesting. So she's trying very to protect her entity, which is quite admirable, but, uh, you know, she's maybe uh, taking out a Monopoly and Monopoly-style board games. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> she's, falling, she's falling prey to the exact thing she is trying to fight against. <laughs> I know, she's literally commercialising what shouldn't be commercialised in her view. Exactly, it's so funny. But here's where Maggie kind of get, gets a stab in the ribs, you know. You know she's kind of betrayed because according to an advertisement uh, placed in the Christian Science Monitor, a man by the name of Charles Todd uh, of Philadelphia, uh, he, he, he in 1932 uh, went and visited his childhood friend uh, Esther Jones um, and her husband Charles Darrow and he went to their house for dinner. And they had a wonderful time, Dara, with parsnips, chicken, gravy. Oh, it was delicious, Dara. I'm drooling just at the thought of it. <laughs> You're hungry. <laughs> I, I am very hungry, I must I should say. Go eat. <laughs> I should, after this, I, I guarantee I'll go and have a nice, lovely dinner. We're actually having uh -huh. dumplings for dinner. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. What do you think you'll have, Dara? <laughs> uh, probably, I think, chicken fajitas. Oh, I love chicken fajitas. They're amazing. Oh, oh! I have to say, my mother cooks the the best chicken fajitas. I'm sorry to say, Dara, you you you'll have some rivalry if you you claim that you you make great uh, chicken fajitas. <laughs> oh, that's massive, huh? 
Oh yeah, actually we, we just got finished watching uh, a very old season of MasterChef that my family and I have been watching uh, currently. Uh, you know, since there are no spoilers, since nobody's talking about the 2012 edition of MasterChef, we've managed to enjoy it relatively spoiler free. So oh, that culminated good. in very the good. season finale there. But anyway, sorry, I'll get back on to Monopoly because uh, I also want to talk briefly about chess and briefly about um, risk af after this. So basically, the Darrow introduced um, Charles Todd to the Landlord's Game and they played it several times during the evening and, and over the coming weeks and eventually uh, Charles Todd said, alright, I need you to write down the rules for me because I don't fully understand. And so they wrote down the rules uh, for, for Charles Todd, the Darrows did. And um, uh, they gave Todd the rules. And then, you know, the Darrows, they were like, hang on a second, we just wrote the rules to this game because it didn't come with rules in the box that, you know, that we received. We just knew the rules uh, from word of mouth when they purchased the, uh, the board game. So they went on and they began to utilize their written rules and distribute the game as Monopoly. Huh? That is clever. Exactly. Very so, clever. <laughs> very, very clever couple. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so the, the Parker brothers, uh, who, who would then go on to be a subsidiary of uh, Hasbro, uh, bought the, the game's uh, copyrights uh, from Darrow, uh, Dar right? And um, yes. this all went well. Darrow was very pleased. But the Parker brothers began to get some complaints from a lady called Maggie Lizzie saying they were selling her game. So they investigated this and they realized Darrow had basically scammed them. He didn't own any of the patents or anything like that. They were really Maggie's. So they offered $500 to Maggie in compensation. And Maggie, you know, probably not having been offered this much money or earned this much money from the landlord's game, quickly accepted this offer and sold the patent to the Parker brothers. And um, so yes. then, in 1935, on February 6th, uh, the, the Parker Brothers began marketing and selling uh, Monopoly, uh, which is really cool, and that's basically the origins of Monopoly. Oh, an additional uh, couple of facts about Monopoly, which I found very interesting whilst researching this, um, was that the original version of the game, uh, in the kind of board format that we now know and love, uh, was based on the streets of Atlantic City in New Jersey, which I thought was really cool. Um, and cool. Like it, Monopoly was used as a spy tool during World War II, which is very oh. interesting. So, so basically the Parker Brothers uh, began licensing the game for sale outside the United States, uh, basically saying, all right, well, well, we can't produce it in Europe, so we'll, we'll sell the license to a, a company called John Waddington Limited, right? So in 1941, the British Secret Intelligence Service uh, asked John Waddington Limited um, to create a special edition of Monopoly for POWs uh, held in Nazi camps, right? Oh, wow. And so, so then posing as fake charities, uh, the, the British Secret Intelligence Service would go in and start handing out these Monopoly games. And inside these Monopoly game packs were maps of the surrounding areas of the camps taken from aerial photographs of planes flying overhead, compasses 
for the prisoners to use once they escaped the facilities, real money that they could use in the country that they were being held in, and other objects basically to help them escape. And, and Monopoly cool. was utilised to help people during World War II, which I thought was very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, like and that. another interesting aspect of Monopoly during World War II there, which is equally interesting, is you know nowadays that you basically you can find Monopoly sets based in uh, cities all around the world, correct? Correct statement, even Ireland, Dublin. Exactly, Dublin, uh, I, I think I remember seeing a Galway version in Easton's at some stage. You know, yeah, you can yeah. basically get, uh, you can basically log on to the Hasbro website if you so wish uh, and pay an uh, extortionate fee to basically create your own board with, uh, you know, specific place names and everything like that. Um, but this all occurred because of the Nazis there. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? How, like, the weirdest way possible something like this has happened you know you would you wouldn't associate the two exactly you you would not think that that nazi the nazis basically influenced the 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 monopoly board game you know you would not think that at all but they did and uh, the nazis occupied the netherlands during world war ii as uh, people would know um, and and during this time uh, the dutch people loved uh, monopoly and Monopoly was being sold all over the Netherlands. Um, but the problem that the Nazis had with uh, Monopoly being basically sold in the Netherlands was that it used American or British cities on the board. So the Nazis said, all right, well, we're going to use Dutch locations. So they would alter the locations when the Monopoly boards were imported into the Netherlands and thus started this kind of craze of creating monopoly boards for individual cities um, and places and um, so that, that that's quite a cool aspect the nazis influenced uh, <laughs> monopoly <laughs> it's, it's just off the wall really absolutely you associate the two at all exactly no no you you wouldn't it's one of those things that like if you can find the link you're you're a, you're, you're a genius and now dara myself and yourself are geniuses and so are our listeners. Yeah, the best. <laughs> so I'll move briefly on to chess because I love chess and I genuinely think I could do an entire episode on chess. Um, but basically, I'll give you the gist because I'd rather move on to risk and do an entire episode on chess. But chess, uh, the history of chess can be traced back nearly 1,500 years ago, right? Um, and, and it's believed to have been, uh, it's believed to have originated in India. Uh, during the 7th century um, and it was in initially known as and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation so please I apologize to any of our Indian listeners uh, you know about this pronunciation but I'm going to give it my best shot uh, Chat Chaturanga Chaturanga oh, beautiful thank you thank you very much Dara <laughs> and you know what this translates into Dara <laughs> what tell us four divisions of the military uh, and then that's beautiful which, which are inf infantry, cavalry, elephantry, and chariotry back then. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which is class. Um, so they basically, the, the infantry, caval cavalry, elephantry, and chariotry uh, would, would eventually evolve into knights, pawns, bishops, and rooks, right? Um, 
And then when the Arabs uh, conquered Persia, uh, chess was taken up uh, by, by the Muslim world and then spread throughout Southern Europe uh, and around the world uh, because, you know, the, 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 these, these empires stretched for, for oh, uh, hundreds of kilometers. Uh, yes. so, so chess was introduced to Persia and, and then it was introduced to the Persian nobility um, and from there chess basically evolved uh, and became what we know chess to be today. But I'm actually going to put a little pin in chess there because I, I have quite a bit more written about it but I could fill an entire episode up about chess. I think I will later down the line there I, so I'm going to pinpoint that and we'll come I back to chess. chess. Oh, I love game. it. It's I amazing. recently just finished The Queen's Gambit and it was amazing. Oh, I've yet to watch it, but I heard it's really good. What what, what would you give it out of 10, Dar? 11. I thought it was sublime. Oh, lovely. That's that's uh, what you gave um, a couple of those Christmas movies that we raided back in the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. So I'll briefly move on to Risk because Risk also has a really interesting history. And I feel like our listeners probably aren't as familiar with Risk as I would be because I, I really enjoy Risk. Darren, what, what, what are your thoughts on Risk? We've played one or two games of Risk together, haven't we? Oh, many, many again. Yes, yes, exactly. Actually, it, it, it's, a, it's a go-to staple. In our in our household, actually, when people come over, which is great. Um, but risk basically the aim of the game is to conquer the world. Am I correct, there? Hundred percent. It always is. <laughs> always. <laughs> push comes to shove, you have to conquer the world. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you you control infantry, cavalry, and uh, cannons. I, I'm not sure what you'd call that kind of regiment in the army. Uh, artillery, that's the word. Um, uh, so, so the infantry counters one troop, uh, cavalry counters five troops, um, and then artillery would count as ten troops. And you basically divide your troops, you get a certain amount of troops at the beginning of the game, you're given cards with countries on them, you place your troops in countries that you want to fortify uh, or, and protect, or countries that you believe you could start a campaign to invade other countries. And sometimes Risk games can last for hours, just like my description of Risk, or sometimes they can last for days. Uh, and sometimes with the introduce, uh, introduction of um, secret mission cards, uh, which I'll get onto in a, a sec, uh, they can last for maybe an hour, to, which really shortens the game and makes them a lot more accessible uh, to people who aren't familiar with Risk. But uh, Risk was invented by a French film director called Albert Lamorisset, right? Lamorisset, I'd yes. say. Um, and it was released in 1957. So not as old as Monopoly, but equally as probably, r r it's held in as high regard as Monopoly because the, the rules and the function of Risks are so well thought out. Um, and it's quite interesting that Albert uh, it wasn't his primary um, you know, goal to create board games, but actually film. And he won quite a lot of uh, awards for his films and short films. Um, but the Risk was originally released as, excuse the pronunciation once again, La Conquête uh, du Monde, uh, which means the conquest of the world in France. Dar, how badly did I butcher that? 
You're talking to past French students, so you probably have <laughs> Oh, shucks. Oh, gosh. But, um, you know, a, a staple from the Monopoly franchise, the Parker Brothers, uh, came back and basically bought the rights to Risk and re-released it in 1959 with some modifications. Uh, and they basically uh, marketed it as Risk the Continental Game um, and then after that they marketed it as Risk the Game of Global Domination, really getting down to the general crux of what Risk is all about. So uh, Risk had many iterations over the years. Uh, there, there was a version of Risk in 1986 called Castle Risk, which depicted an 18th century European castle, um, but this was met with financial disappointment, so the Parker Brothers wouldn't release a new version of Risk for 15 years after 1986, and they would try again uh, with uh, the introduction of, as I mentioned earlier, the secret mission cards, right? And these secret mission cards had been standard in Europe, but had not been added to the United States editions of Risk. And basically, on introducing the secret mission cards in the United States, Risk took off. And um, they, the Parker Brothers, and subsequently Hasbro, uh, decided to begin releasing limited edition versions of Risk. Uh, the the first being in 1999. Well, you could say that Castle Risk. Uh, in 1986 could have been the first kind of different edition, uh, special edition, but no, uh, I would count that the 1999 uh, French Risk uh, special edition called uh, Napoleon, uh, the Napoleon edition, sorry, um, was released in commemoration for, of the 200th anniversary of the Napoleonic era, and once again that absolutely skyrocketed, and believe it or not, Darren, that's a version of Risk I have in my house today. Oh. Yes. That's cool. And I also have a version of Risk, uh, which was released in 2001, called 2210 uh, AD, uh, so 2210 AD. Um, and uh, I have that version as well, which is a futuristic themed uh, game of Risk uh, featuring moon territories. I also have the Star Wars version of Risk. Um, and I'm looking at purchasing the Lord of the Rings version of Risk. But there are so many editions of Risk now because every year six new editions of limited edition uh, Risk sets are released every year. Six a year now. Uh, so that started in 2002. So you have a lot of catching up to do if you want to purchase all the different variations of Risk. Um, That's a lot. And, and that basically is the, the history of Risk. I have a couple more things written down here about the, the first edition being played with wooden cubes uh, and spheres and um, basically representing different uh, troop counts but that's the general gist of the history of Risk. And I, I really enjoy Risk so I thought I'd give it a quick mention. I also really enjoy chess. Yes. Absolutely brilliant. Fascinating. <laughs> really fascinating. Fascinating how there's such a backstory in regarding even World War II with board games. Absolutely, and it's, it's 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 so cool to see how the you know the general perception and how society basically molded board games, and that we're still playing with what some would call outdated staples of society in the board games that we're playing with today. Exactly, exactly. That's it. That's it. It's there you crazy. go. And uh, so I think that about wraps up the show, Darren, doesn't it? 
does. But it's been a brilliant show. A it's really good show. It's been a great show. It's been a great show, Dara. And I've loved talking to you and listening about the Apollo 13. And I loved listening all about board games. I wasn't bored. <laughs> ah, ah. Ah. I like that. I'm glad. And hopefully our listeners weren't either. But Dara, you know what's interesting? If our listeners have been paying close attention to the start of the show, the middle of the show, and subsequently the end of the show, they'll notice that our normal theme tune has been replaced with a superb rendition of We Are Number One from the hit TV show uh, Sports Town, isn't it? Yes, that's um, it. Lazy Town. Lazy, Lazy Town. Town, that's it, Lazy Town. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely rendition from one of my friends. Now she's asked to remain anonymous, but I think she deserves some recognition for uh, sending this in to us. And I, I'd just like to say thank you to her on behalf of both myself and Dara. Uh, so yes, the listeners- Thank you very much. Thank Great you, thank you very are. much, cool. anonymous. Cool. <laughs> uh, so she, she's been so very kind to have sent that in to us. So if our, uh, you know, if listeners have tuned into several episodes of the show, they'll, they'll recognize that and they should be appreciative of her uh, for doing so. Uh, you'll also listen to another promo feature for the 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 podcast um, brought to you by John and Felix, who you might remember from our last pairing with them when they ran uh, a charity event, uh, helping haircuts. There we go. Um, and we, we paired up with them and we, we basically wore some suits, took some pictures for charity and hopefully you did as well. Suit Up For Simon was the name of that event. Uh, they've created a podcast now where they interview people uh, who are very interesting and have a an interesting tale to tell. So that is The The, the, the Podcast, uh, hosted by Felix and John. Um, and Dara, we're coming to the, the, the staple of our show, which is asking you, I'm putting you on the spot, for the song that we're going to be playing uh, for our listeners once we end the show. So Dara, what song have you selected? I suggest, I've suggested, no, I haven't suggested. Well, I will suggest, but I will select <laughs> as well. A song by Simon Arnold Garfunkel, Ooh. Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Oh, I love that song, Dara. An excellent choice. You have an exquisite taste in music, I must oh, say. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're too kind. So I've been Rory. I've been Dara. You've been listening to Rory and Dara's Research and Development only on 101.3 Flirt FM. Thank you for listening and please enjoy Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. John. And I'm Felix. We are the hosts of A First Podcast, where every episode we talk to interesting, exciting, and wonderful people about their passions and interests. So join us on The The The, the podcast, podcast to explore the ordinary and discover the extraordinary one conversation at a time. You can find us on all major streaming sites. Thanks very much for listening. And thank you very much, Dara and Rory. Feeling
Sail on, silver girl. Sail on. Your time has come to shine. 